What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Today on the Everything 80s podcast, we count down the top 20 movies of the 1980s. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out. And today is my full countdown and exhaustive um, research and compilation of the top 20 movies of the 1980s. We're going to get right to it in a sec. Uh, There's a usual, if you haven't already, subscribe where you get your podcast. I should be there. Any of those platforms, I'm there. Okay, let's do this. So there are a few criteria behind this list before we get started. So the main thing is I'm going to do the top 20. I'm actually going to throw another one in top 21 movies of the 1980s from the perspective of a kid growing up in the 80s. So, of course, like, you know, it could take classics like on Golden Pond or the color purple or, you know, you know, things like that. But they're not exactly right in the wheelhouse of someone who grew up in the 80s, right, right in the heart of it. And there's a few other criteria because, you know, my own personal biases are going to influence this list. As certain movies make an emotional connection or, you know, elicit a certain response from the individual and that shapes, you know, the movies we love. But I'd say I have a good perspective on behalf of 80s kids to help narrow this down. But I'm also factoring in things like cultural impact, rewatchability, box office success, and then also, you know, sort of the word of mouth, like what were those around me at the time saying? What were they liking? Which was, you know, kind of not talking about like, you know, just little, little kids, but people in social situations, whether it's in high schools or playgrounds or work settings, when it was more, you know, I guess water cooler talk, if you want, with, you know, pre-internet age and whatever. And sharing a favorite movie was, you know, done in person or in groups and talking about why you liked it and everything like that. So those are the different uh, criteria I'm using to factor all this together. And trust me, this was not easy trying to narrow this down. I could have made this, you know, you see those uh, lists online. that's like the 98 best movies of the eighties, which to me is a sort of a cop out because then you can just lump them all together and put in everything. This really focuses on kind of narrowing it down and even more though. So than a top 10 list, which is almost impossible if you consider the eighties, like one of the golden ages of movies. So 20, actually these 21 I found was kind of the ideal number. Things are going to be forgotten or not forgotten, not included. And I can, you know, understand the uproar of a certain things, but I think (laughs) this took me a while, but I think I captured it all. And what we'll do is look at each of those movies, quick rundowns of them, some behind the scenes stuff there, you know, uh, box office success, all that. Okay. Starting off our list at number 21, Crocodile Dundee. 
So if you remember that Simpsons episode where they go to Australia, there was a time in the 80s where Australia seemed to really impact North American culture. Just think about like bands like Midnight Oil, Men at Work, those Duracell commercials, Yahoo Serious. Remember that guy? He had a movie too. And on this that Simpsons episode, they mentioned how somehow the Aussies thought this would be a permanent thing. Then you had Crocodile Dundee. This was a classic fish-out-of-water story that really launched Paul Hogan here in North America. Paul Hogan, though, has already been a massive star for years and years back in Australia, but he was able to really take over America going into the fall of 1986. So Crocodile Dundee is the story of Mick Dundee, who's being researched for a newspaper article by uh, his would-become, I think, wife, Linda Kozlowski. So she heads to the outback to follow his way of life before bringing him back to New York. From there, you know, we get basically kind of the kind of the Australian version of Borat, uh, you know, as he's kind of trying to find his way in a new land and navigate the, the culture and the city. Crocodile Dundee was a massive success, bringing in over $328 million on a budget of only $8.8 million. Paul Hogan actually raised the budget for the movie himself through things like tax concessions back in Australia and contributions from other actors he worked with. He he was certain it was going to work, and it did. It paid off. The movie was massive, and Hogan would become, like I said, a breakout star. So a few of the – I'll do two or three fun facts on each movie here. It's the highest-grossing Australian movie ever, with Mad Max 2 following it at number two. Again, Hogan was convinced it would be a hit. He actually was quoted as saying, this movie will make millions of dollars. And, of course, you know, people think he's crazy, and it did. It's also based on a real-life crocodile Dundee, a guy named Rod Ansel. And you can look him up and all the crazy stories about this guy. Okay, at number 20, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So a classic John Hughes teen comedy, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, tells the story of a high school kid who skips class for the day and ventures all around Chicago. So this is an interesting movie because it took the unique approach of breaking the fourth wall and having the main characters talk to the audience. We see this all the time now, but was a real novelty in 1986. One of the next movies that did this in a big way was Wayne's World. Uh, but again, like it seems like not a big deal, but it was relatively groundbreaking then. So Ferris Bueller is played by Matthew Broderick, and the movie is like it is like a real love letter to the city of Chicago. And Hughes wrote this entire movie in less than a week. But this was his style of creating screenplays, as he would often write through the night until four or five in the morning and just hammer these things out. So the movie came out on June eleventh, nineteen eighty six. And, of course, it was a massive hit. Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. It would make over $70 million just in the U.S. alone. And this was on a budget of just around $5.8 million. So it remains an iconic movie, has many culturally significant moments, a lot of memorable lines and characters. So some fun facts here. You probably know these ones, but that the shot of the construction worker dancing in the parade was actually just it was just a regular guy he had no idea there was a movie being filmed and he's just dancing also considered for the role of ferris bueller jim carrey tom cruise and michael j fox and i could see michael j fox very easily playing this role 
that okay ben stein who does if you remember that part he does the lecture on the smoot holly tariff act remember that whole scene was completely improvised he had been doing something like this uh sort of off camera with the extras and the students or whatever and then just laughing their heads off and they they had him do this actual scene in the movie but he just like freestyled the whole thing okay number 19 indiana jones and the temple of doom we're going to see Harrison Ford a few times on this list, so that's a spoiler warning. Actually, as I was going through this, if there's one actor that defines the entire 80s, it has to be Harrison Ford. Think about all the iconic movies he was in, and obviously Indiana Jones and Han Solo, and like to be able to star in a, more than one of the best trilogies of all time as one of the main characters, along with a handful of other amazing movies, I, I, I think he's the... Uh, the goat of the 80s there. So his first entry on our list is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So not only was this the much-anticipated sequel for the first Indiana Jones, it actually changed the course of movies forever. I'll get to that in a sec. So the movie is a full, uh, full-on action-adventure movie. You know, you're familiar with the Indiana Jones trilogy. Directed by Steven Spielberg. It was co-written and produced by George Lucas. And serves as a as a prequel almost because Lucas didn't want Indiana Jones to be fighting Nazis again, even though he didn't really stick to that. Mo- the movie was a massive hit, making over $333 million. Came out on May 23rd, 1984. It actually broke the record for the highest opening weekend at $45.7 million. So again, this is back in the early 80s. So we cur- convert that today. That's around $111 million, which again holds up pretty well. And remember, the big thing with all these things when we're looking at numbers, uh, box office success, movies open on way fewer screens back in the 80s. Whereas, I'll get to this more in a bit, but like say the average Marvel movie can be on 3,000 to 4,000 screens. Some of these big blockbusters at the time are only out on like 1,500 screens. So it's really hard to compare dollar values. It's more about looking at like actual ticket sales to see the success of a movie and it still did amazing. So how did this movie change film history? Well, if you've been on this podcast before, if you've listened to some of the other episodes, you will remember it is, this movie is extremely dark. Both Spielberg and Lucas were going through breakups at the time. And a lot of this anger and hostility were reflected in the movie. There's a lot of, go back and watch this thing. There's a lot of messed up stuff in it. And it only had a PG rating. So parents taking their unsuspecting kids were in for a rude awakening and everyone went nuts. If you think like a movie like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is a PG movie, you would think Indiana Jones would be along the same lines. But they just pushed it way too far. Even people around Spielberg uh, mentioned that he, he pushed it too much on this one. So Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is responsible for creating the PG-13 rating, which would help bridge the gap between PG and R. And again, I have a whole episode that goes way more in depth about the creation of the PG-13 rating. It's an amazing story, but it really did change uh, the course of movie history and how movies would be made. Okay, some fun facts here. It had the record for highest selling videotape of all time at the time. It got a rare perfect four star rating from Roger Ebert. And then interesting thing I found, 80% of the film is actually shot on sound stages in England and not as out in the wild as you would think. Okay, number 18, Stand By Me. 
one of the ultimate coming of age movies had a profound effect on kids like me watching it in the eighties. Another one of those great Rob Reiner movies and, you know, named after that iconic Benny King song, the story of four boys growing up in Oregon in 1959. The simple synopsis of the movie is that they go on a hike in order to see a dead body. And as simple as that premise is, it's the journey, again, not the destination. That's the important part of the trip. And then seeing the growth of the characters, kind of like Lord of the Rings, but with the, with the vomit scene. So many forget this movie is based on the Stephen King book, The Body, which came out in 1982 and also, of course, stars some great young actors like Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman and Jerry O'Connell. Stand By Me came out on August 8th, 1986 and was a big hit. So here's the thing when it comes to the movie issue, uh, the screening issue. It had a limited release and still made a lot of money. When it had, when Stand By Me had its full opening, it was only shown on 745 theaters. Even at its peak, when it was already like received as a hit film and like people wanted to see this thing, it was only shown on 848 screens. It still ended up making over 52 million in '86, which converted for today's 121 million which is huge and on a budget of just $8 million. So that's amazing uh, success when you think it's not, you know, you didn't have crazy big multiplexes as much at the time that have, you know, 30 different theaters and they can show the same movie on six different uh, screens with various, you know, 3D, IMAX, not 3D, you know, all the different um, iterations of it. Some fun facts here. Rob Reiner says that Stand By Me is his personal favorite of all his films. Uh, The actors auditioning for Stranger Things were asked to read lines from Stand By Me just to see how they would interact and kind of try to capture that. If if you've watched Stranger Things, I'm assuming you have if you're listening to a show like this. You notice Stand Stand By Me has got a real theme throughout Stranger Things. They really sort of captured a lot of that, and they wanted to see if they could when they were auditioning the characters. Also, again, which makes that great chemistry in the movie, the four main actors spent two weeks together before filming um, just to, again, build those real friendships and see that reflected on the screen. Coming in at number 17, The Breakfast Club. Speaking of like coming of age teen movies, this more, you know, comedy-ish, but again, all about the growth of the characters and their evolution. This time, you know, John Hughes again and another simple premise and a film that's lasted well beyond its years, it, it, it would work in any decade. Uh, and again, a, it's a definitive part of the 80s. Breakfast Club, it, it's so simple, but goes so much deeper. You have, you have these high school kids from varying levels of popularity and different cliques, and they have to spend a Saturday at school in detention. That's it. That's the whole premise. But it's a movie that's connected with so many people over the years. I believe this is because The Breakfast Club has a character that everyone can relate to and identify themselves with. It also shows that despite their differences, the characters and, you know, teenagers in general have much more in common with each other than they realize. And that idea of just being uh, misunderstood and trying to find their own identity. That's at its core. The movie's about the struggle of teenagers. They're often misunderstood by parents, teachers, themselves. Every kid can relate to this whether it's a kid watching in the 50s or 50 years from now. And I think it's what makes this movie hold up to multiple generations. So since this was a very simple concept, it was also simple to make, and it cost only a million dollars to make. The majority of the movie was a single set and shot in one room. 
this was John Hughes' directorial, directorial debut, and there was concern if he actually even had the ability to pull off a movie like this. Spoiler alert, he does. The movie comes out on February 15th, 1985, clearly a hit. Not not only critically, but it held up well, considering it came out on the same weekend as Beverly Hills Cop. It ended up taking over $52 million in uh, box office returns, and considering how low the budget was, it that was a massive financial success. Fun facts. The Breakfast Club is preserved in the National Film Registry and the Library of Congress. Emilio Estevez auditioned for the role of Bender initially, and Rick Moranis was originally cast as the janitor, which would have been incredible. I think that might have made it a little too wacky, though, just because it's hard not to associate Rick Moranis with all his previous work and that type of character he is. So, I mean, whatever. It still would have been cool. Okay, number 16. And see, this is something I would personally have higher, but I, I'm factoring in all those other things I was talking about as far as um, the impact and what people were saying and how it held up. Blade Runner. So Blade Runner is so effing good. If you haven't watched this movie in a while, the more time goes by, the more you realize how amazing this movie is. Again, like I'd like to have it higher, but when I factor in all the others in the in the top 10 and everything, you'll see why. It's hard to sum it all up in this short little description. I mean, there there could be an entire podcast just about Blade Runner. Um, and I'm sure there is. I just haven't looked for them. So, okay, Harrison Ford, again, here, here he is in another iconic 80s movie directed by the great Ridley Scott. It's a story set in the future. I'm hoping you've seen this. Specifically, Los Angeles in 2019. So, again, always crazy when movies don't go that far into the future and we end up living at the same time, whatever, and back to future two. We'll get to that. So in this dystopian future, synthetic humans known as replicants are being created by the sinister Tyrell Corporation and sent to work on other planets. A group of replicants rebel and become fugitives and make it back to Earth. It's up to a haggard cop named Rick Decker, that's Harrison Ford, to try and hunt them down. And if, if you've seen, I don't know what your format of choice is as far as watching, if you like to stream stuff or you have your DVDs, but like Blu-ray wise, if I I have, I think I have a couple different copies of it because there's always been different releases. Why, if you watch Blade Runner on Blu-ray, it looks like the movie was filmed yesterday. That's how good it is. It came out in 1982. It's crazy to think how far back that is. And again, amazing to think how ahead of its time it was. The, the one big issue though, which why it's farther down this list is the idea of accessibility. It's it's tough to get into Blade Runner. I mean, you can't just sort of sit back and turn your brain off. Like it takes some investment. You're kind of like mentally exhausted by the end of the movie. The other big issue is all the different versions of it. There was the theatrical release. There's a director's cut. There's a domestic cut. There's an international cut. And then there's the final cut. And I think there's another one on top of that, all different versions. I to me I like the director's cut that first director's cut not the final cut that's the one that came out in 1992 and I think puts it all together the best like I said there's all these different ones to watch and they really do change like many great movies Blade Runner did not do well in theaters and it took a while before it was fully appreciated again like I said it's not necessarily a popcorn movie 
it's served better by watching it multiple times. Again, it, it polarized critics. It barely broke even at the box office on a very high for the time budget of $30 million. And, you know, with this big, um, movie star, you know, that they, they think would bring in the masses, but this, see this movie and just remember how amazing this was. And, and remember the whole time that this was made in 1982 also. And again, I knew this was going to happen with Blade Runner 2049. That movie is nuts. It's mind blowingly good. Like visually, technically, Again, if you have Blu-ray or 4K, get it on that. It's probably the best-looking movie you'll ever see, like from my opinion. And the same thing, that movie did not do, do well. That's how hard it is for movies. You take you take an iconic movie like Blade Runner and um, a like one of the best directors of all time in Ridley Scott, you remake it again, you put in Ryan Gosling, who's a massive star. You've also got like Dave Bautista. Everything should be there. And again, it's just not accessible to everyone as good as it is. It didn't do well. Um, it didn't make a ton of money. So, I mean, it kind of kind of seems uh, poetic justice almost uh, for the original um, and it following in the same footsteps. So, But both amazing movies. So, fun facts here. There's a lot of interesting influences that go behind the movie, including things like Frankenstein and even the flood of Noah is um, big themes that go through it. Dustin Hoffman almost played the role of Deckard also considered were Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I could easily see working Clint Eastwood, Sean Connery and Jack Nicholson. Those were sort of the big guys at the time. Harrison Ford states that Blade Runner though is not one of his favorite films, which is interesting. Okay, and while Harrison Ford just keeps rolling here, so at number 15, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Here's the movie that kicked off the whole Indiana Jones franchise in 1981. If you think that within, again, within just a few years, like what are we talking here, like three years, he'd made, Harrison Ford had made two Star Wars movies, Blade Runner, and now Indiana Jones. I, I, I don't know how he had time to do all this stuff. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark introduces us to the handsome archaeologist Indiana Jones. He is trying to recover an ancient golden idol while trying to thwart the Nazis. He is taken to Egypt where the pursuit is on for the Lost Ark, which is the biblical Ark of the Covenant. The Ark turns out to be real and a lot of people die, but the movie finishes with one of the most famous scenes in movie history with the uh, wooden crate warehouse scene. Raiders of the Lost Ark was George Lucas wanting to return to classic TV serials of the 30s and 40s, but brought to a modern audience. It worked well, and the casting of, of course, Harrison Ford made Indiana Jones a perfect new franchise. It came out on June 12th, 1981, and was a gigantic hit. Here's how gigantic it was. It was the top grossing film in 1981. It pulled in $390 million, which is over a billion dollars when converted for today. And that puts it in as one of the highest grossing movies of all time. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards and then again cemented Harrison Ford as the perfect action movie everything star. An amazing thing was that Indiana Jones was rejected by every major studio in Hollywood, even though George Lucas was behind it. I think that's because... I don't know if they saw Star Wars as being sort of a fluke or not. I don't know. It had a pretty big budget of $20 million. And again, no one wanted to touch that even after what Star Wars did. It's weird. Again, if you haven't seen some of these movies in a while, and again, specifically here, Raiders of the Lost Ark, check this again because it's 
always going to be entertaining. It, it's that classic premise action adventures sort of serial thing that works in the 30s. It worked in the 80s. It works today. Still good. So some fun facts. The canyon where Indiana threatens to blow up the Ark was the same location where R2-D2 was attacked by the Jawas in Star Wars. The Atari Raiders of the Lost Ark video game was the very first video game based on a movie. And the movie ended up winning four Academy Awards. Okay, number 14, Beverly Hills Cop. Definitely not for every kid growing up in the 80s, but Beverly Hills Cop was an iconic film, a breakout feature for Eddie Murphy, and again, very culturally significant. So, I mean, it could be higher, it could, you know, it might be lower on some people's list. I think it fits in here well. Again, the, the competition in the 80s is just ridiculous as, as you're seeing these unfold here. So the movie Beverly Hills Cops about Axel Foley, who that's Eddie Murphy, who's a cop from Detroit that comes to Beverly Hills after his friend is murdered there. He had been prevented from coming, but fakes going on vacation and ultimately to help solve his friend's murder. Eddie Murphy was already well known. Um, you know, he came in to save Saturday Night Live. Like Saturday Night Live wasn't going to make it. Eddie Murphy was the guy that really saved it all. And, Bev, you know, and then there's Raw and Delirious, the stamp specials. But Beverly Hills Cop made him a worldwide star. It was the perfect, you know, movie vehicle for him to um, star in because it combined action and comedy. And, again, like his stand-up specials, he could let it rip in the movie. That's why it was rated R. And as I said, though, not for kids, but that was the massive appeal to it, I thought. It was impossible to ignore the impact that Beverly Hills Cop made and it ended up being the number one grossing movie of 1984. It was made on a budget of just $13 million and was a massive hit, pulling in over $316 million or converted for today $800 million. That's pretty nuts. It also featured the iconic theme song, Axel F., which I'm not going to hum it, but it's you, you know what I'm talking about. Now it's probably in your head. Despite being a financial success, many forget that you know this seems like it's one of those throwaway movies now when you think about it like uh, like bad boys or rush hour you know th those type of things but beverly hills cop was a massive critical hit too and was actually nominated for an oscar for best original screenplay let's take a journey back to 2003 canadian teen sensation avril lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down but what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So some fun facts. Believe this or not, the role of Axel was first offered to Mickey Rourke. Uh, then when they got Eddie Murphy and 30% of that $13 million budget went to his salary. And then another amazing thing is Beverly Hills Cop stayed at the at number one for an amazing 13 straight weeks. Okay, at number 13, the opposite of an R-rated movie. We've got a family movie here, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. A kid's fantasy come true, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was a massive hit for Disney during a time when their live-action films weren't really anything to write home about. The special effects you know, don't hold up today, but the spirit of the movie does. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is, is the story of an innovator who creates a uh, shrinking ray that accidentally shrinks down his and the neighbor's kids. They all accidentally get thrown out in the trash and have to sojourn their way through the backyard to get home. 
Along the way, they encounter many life-threatening creatures, objects, and situations. The terrifying situations were what gave Disney some hesitation with this movie, as it was written by a guy named Stuart Gordon who had a history in horror movies. Disney needed this to be a family-friendly movie, but there was some concern about the implications that some of the characters might actually die in this thing. They were also worried about the creatures, especially Auntie. You remember the giant ant? They didn't want him looking too intense for children. Either way, we know that the movie was a great action adventure and became a surprise hit for Disney. It opened to a very good $14 million when it came out on June 23rd, 1989. This put it up against Batman and that opening weekend, and it was still able to finish number two at the box office. The success might have been because Batman was selling it left and right and people still wanted to see a movie, uh, but it did catch on and became a favorite of kids. It would end up making $222 million worldwide, doing much better than they had anticipated. So some fun facts here. The neighbor, Russ Thompson, was played by Matt Frewer, a.k.a. Max Hedrum. The movie went through various names such as Teeny Weenies, uh, but then they thought it would be thought of as like a little kid's movie so they changed it they then went to grounded but then they that wasn't really implying what the movie is about then they went to the backyard which would have been a good name and then honey i shrunk the kids worked out well also the title is grammatically incorrect as it should be honey i shrank the kids but whatever okay number 12 on the list indiana jones and the last crusade again not the last time we're going to see harrison ford on this list but it's the last time we'll see him as Indiana Jones. Well, until the atrocity, it was the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but whatever. To me and many others, The Last Crusade is the best of the trilogy, and it's everything that makes Indiana Jones and movies great. It's the classic story of the search for the Holy Grail. We get to meet Andy and his father, played by the legendary Sean Connery, and it's a movie that has everything, action, adventure, comedy, exotic locations, Nazis, and a biblical story that's always been compelling. The movie moves at this like breakneck speed. And again, I think it's the best of all of them. It came out on May 24th, 1989. Of course, it was a massive hit. This was the first Indiana Jones to have the PG-13 rating. But the gore and the violence were actually toned down, making it more accessible. Because this movie was all about the adventure. It made a huge $474 million at the box office. It's around a billion dollars today. Uh, it made everyone happy, especially Spielberg, as this was his way to apologize to George Lucas for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and the tone of that movie. So some fun facts. Oddly, no toys or real kids merchandise was made to promote the film. I think this is because, and I cover this in the PG-13 uh, episode, when they put out um, The Last Indiana Jones before that uh, with the PG rating and when the parents went nuts, there was a promotional tie-in with the Happy Meal and McDonald's. And that was part of the problem is that people thought, oh, it's Indiana Jones and we see these um, toys and these commercials and it's got to be good. And McDonald's never saw a cut of the movie, so they went ballistic and they were a big um, influence on the changing of the direction of the tone of the movies. And as far as even helping usher in this PG 13 rating and uh, cutting off any possible merchandising, right? So they actually had a lot of say in this. So it was kind of interesting now that this movie was more accessible to kids that they really didn't push anything toy wise. It broke the record for the most money made over seven days. 
And one last interesting fact, 5,000 actual rats were bred for that. Remember the catacomb scene underground and everything? Yeah, those were real rats. Okay, number 11, one of my favorites. I mean, these are all my favorites, but like a movie I might have personally a bit higher on my list, but how, you know, I see how it sort of factors in everything. That is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the most ambitious crossover movie in film history. A movie like this could only happen in the 80s and would be borderline impossible today. This is it's crazy to watch this movie. If you have Disney Plus, I think it's on there now. I have it on uh, Blu-ray, but it's a crossover of movie studios, characters, intellectual properties, trademarks, everything. And it's just it's astounding to think that all these famous characters would all share the same screen and they do. And it's still an amazing movie. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was made by Robert Zemeckis and is the story of Roger Rabbit and his wife, Jessica, who's being investigated by Eddie Valiant, a private eye who is seeing if Jessica is cheating on her husband with Marvin Acme, who owns the Acme Corporation and all of Toontown, where everyone lives. Marvin is found dead and it's suspected that Roger did it. We found out that Maroon was killed by the evil Judge Doom, played by the amazing Christopher Lloyd, and... Judge Doom is planning to destroy Toontown with his melting creation called Dip. Eddie battles Judge Doom, who we found it is actually a cartoon. He kills him with the dip and everyone lives happily ever after. So some interesting, like most people don't know, I didn't as well until I was looking all into this. This is actually based on a book called Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which is a mystery novel from 1981. The book is set in the modern day, but the movie goes back to that glory of, you know, old Hollywood. The movie obviously a massive undertaking taking from a technical aspect as well as a legal one. Disney had been playing around with the idea and with some test footage as early as 1981, but it didn't come together until Michael Eisner pledged. It was going to take around $50 million to do this movie, right? It was a massive risk and one that paid off. It came out on June 22nd, 1988 and was a commercial and critical hit. It made $329 million and won three Academy awards. So some other fun facts here. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is very instrumental in creating a renewed interest in traditional hand-drawn animation. And Disney realized there might be something um, worthwhile about pursuing this traditional style again. And that led the way for modern classics like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. So Steven Spielberg was actually the one who made this movie happen. He was the one who was able to convince all the different studios to lend their characters and that it was going to be in their best interest. Uh, One last fun fact. The voice of Roger was Charles Fleischer, who was the member of Thumb 100 Bucks guy from Back to the Future Part 2 in front of To Save the Clock Tower. Okay, let's take a quick little break before we head into the top 10. Okay, coming in at number 10 is Back to the Future 2, which I think segues perfectly with the last one. So it this is, again, where it sort of pains me to put one of my favorite movies ever farther down on this list, but it's for a few reasons. As I, under, you know, I look at it as not entirely an original movie, but, you know, a continuation from the first, and I want to acknowledge some other sort of standalone movies on the list, but... I, Don't get me wrong. I think this is an amazing movie. There was so much anticipation for Back to the Future 2 as it had been nearly four years since the original came out. The thing that makes this movie 
amazing is that it's it picks up right where the first one left off and it also serves as a sequel and also a prequel it goes back into the original movie and it really sets the stage for what um what fun a time travel movie can be you know Back to the Future came out in November 1989, bringing it just under the wire for making it a movie of the 80s. It's also interesting as it's one of the first times ever that the next movie uh, would come out just a few months later. This is because Back to the Future 2 and 3 were filmed at the same time. Back to the Future 2 was also very innovative with technology and a lot of new advancements from industrial light and magic along with uh, digital um, composing and all that sort of thing. It would end up making $332 million worldwide and was the third highest grossing movie of the year. And again, pretty good for a movie that actually was never planned. Robert Zemeckis had no intention of a sequel after the original movie, even though it seemed like it did. That to be continued at the end of the first Back to the Future never appeared during its theatrical run and it was only added uh, to video later on. He also was had no intention of doing this movie unless Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd signed back on to do it, but they did. So some fun facts here. People were duped into thinking the hoverboards were actually real, which was kind of a prank played by Robert Zemeckis. Back to the Future 2 was also groundbreaking because it showed a trailer at the end of it for the next movie for Back to the Future 3. And the last fun fact, it took two years to finish the set of Hill Valley in the future, set in 2015. Okay, number nine, Return of the Jedi. So it's funny to think how this was seen as being the absolute end of the Star Wars saga and that they ended things on a high note, and that has definitely changed over the years. Return of the Jedi was originally going to be called Revenge of the Jedi, but the name was changed at the last minute as it was thought that a Jedi does not take revenge. In the conclusion to this epic trilogy, we see Luke Skywalker evolved into a more powerful Jedi and having come, having to come to hold grips with, uh, spoiler, his father being Darth Vader and an emperor who wants to destroy him. Return of the Jedi was always my favorite of the originals as it seemed like the most action-focused. The success of the first two allowed for this like exemplary budget and the technology was advancing so much that it made the space battles and all the action and everything that much more epic. Even though the movie still looks modern and advanced, it's crazy thing. It came, it was out in 1983. That's so long ago. It opened on May 25th, which was six years to the day that the original star Wars came out. This is obviously the definition of a, of a blockbuster and a monster hit. It would take in $475 million, which is over $1.2 billion today there's so much that can be said about return of the jedi but you know for a kid growing up in the 80s it like movies don't get better than this some fun facts here george lucas financed the movie himself which is never done in hollywood they're always like never put your own money into a movie it did though give him all the rights to the merchandising which was some amazing foresight the idea of promotional tie-ins and toys and movies wasn't really a thing and that was the real bread and butter of all this. For every dollar that Star Wars movies have made, they've made $2 in the merchandise. Other facts, the original plan was to kill off Han Solo early in the movie. And the Ewoks on the Force Moon of Endor were originally going to be all Wookiees. Okay, number eight, Batman. The movie that changed the way comic book movies were made and created a new and darker tone that would be embraced for decades. 
the story of Batman and the Batman movie goes back as far as the 70s with in regard to the intent to make it. The problem was no one wanted anything to do with comic books, which is just hilarious to look back on. Superman was, had been out and was a huge hit, but it was seen as a, a, like a, a one-off hit because the sequels were terrible and derided. And Hollywood, again, didn't think that there was any money in, in comic book movies. Add to this that the fact that most people's impressions of Batman at the time were the campy Adam West version from the 60s. So, But the vision of Tim Burton would help change the entire direction of this genre forever. He envisioned that Batman was more about the story of Bruce Wayne, and he created a darker, more intense tone to it. The look of the movie, the violence, the setting of Gotham City, the music, having heavyweight actor Jack Nicholson as the role of the Joker, it really helped to create the perfect storm of a movie. There were some big trepidations, though, about having comic actor Michael Keaton play the role of the Cape Crusader, which met with some serious backlash. If you grew up at this time, you probably remember all this. Uh, Like, how could this guy play Batman? He's not even big and muscular or anything like that. But everything about this movie was monumental and audiences loved it. This was one of the few times I remember people having to wait weeks to see it because every theater was sold out. Batman helped redefine what a blockbuster movie was, and it is seen as responsible for the importance of opening weekend box office totals. It broke the opening weekend record and finished with $411 million made worldwide, which is around $850 million today. Batman sold upwards of 60 million movie tickets. And if you were to match that with the average movie ticket price, it puts it in the top five of all, of all Marvel movies, money-wise. That's how big it was. Some fun facts. Keaton improvised the line, I'm Batman. Uh, you know, when he's hanging the crook over the top of the building. It was originally meant to be when the guy goes, who are you? He was originally intended to say, I am the knight, but he improvised the line, I'm Batman. The movie producers and even Batman creator Bob Kane, when it's talking about the whole Michael Keaton thing, they all thought he was wrong for the movie, uh, for the choice of Batman. But also up for the role, Robert Redford, Sylvester Stallone, Brute, Burt Reynolds, Paul Newman, and I'm not making this up, Bruce Jenner, all picked to play Batman. Okay, number seven, Gremlins. Gremlins may be that movie that defined the 80s, and it definitely deserves, a you know, I think a spot in the top 10 here. A mesmerizing movie to a kid growing up in the decade. It was part horror movie. It was part comedy. Uh, it's technically a Christmas movie. I, I did a whole show on that if you want to go back and look. Uh, Gizmo was cute. The gremlins were terrifying. It had that memorable blender scene. It had eighties dream girl, Phoebe Cates. Uh, it's amazing. The idea itself came about from writer, Chris Columbus, who made, you know, home alone, the Harry Potter movies. When he was living in New York in an upstairs loft, he would always hear mice running by his bed. He imagined what this would be like if the mice were actually little creatures and gremlins was basically born for that, um, from that idea. The fact Gremlins ever got made, though, was basically pure luck as he shopped it around to 50 different producers who all passed on it. It somehow made it to the desk of Steven Spielberg's secretary, and she sort of like had tossed it to the side. So it landed on this angle where it was sticking out partly from her desk. And Spielberg happens to walk by and just sort of sees this thing sort of at an obtuse angle or whatever. I don't even know if that's the right word. Whatever, enough that it caught his eye. Then he noticed the title and thought that sounded interesting. 
So <laughs> sometimes it's a lot of luck behind these things. Gremlins came out on June 8th, 1984, the same weekend as Ghostbusters, but was a huge hit, making $153 million on a budget of only 11. Some fun facts. The scene uh, where Gizmo pops out of the basket in the living room actually startles the dog. You can see him jump. He would end up actually like trying to tear the puppet apart in different, um, obviously not shown. Gizmo, the voice, the sounds was, was done by Howie Mandel, believe it or not. And then also uh, Jonathan Banks, a.k.a. Mike from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's one of the cops, uh, you know, the two cops when they're in the police station. He's the one sitting down. Okay, number six, Flight of the Navigator. So another pure fantasy movie that was perfect escapism for a kid growing up in the 80s. Flight of the Navigator is is science fiction. It's a space movie. It's time travel all thrown together. It's the story of the kid named David who gets hijacked by a flying saucer and turns up in a hospital, but it's eight years later. Everything and everyone has aged except him. At the same time, NASA has captured this spaceship, and uh, the spaceship is now communicating with David. They meet up as David tries to get his way back to his original time. So Flight of the Navigator is associated as a Disney movie, but they actually didn't have anything to do with it. It was produced by a Norwegian company that ended up going bankrupt, I think twice or something, or another studio took over it. Either way, Disney eventually took over the thing, but they weren't really head over heels about it because this was a time when live-action movies weren't really working for Disney. But they took a chance, and kids and families loved it. Uh, it came out on August 1st, 1986, but was not a huge moneymaker. Of all the films on this list, this movie made the least amount of money, but it would find a huge audience on home video and uh, with kids who'd watch it over and over, myself included. So some fun facts here. The voice of Max is indeed Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman. He's credited as Paul Wall. Um and I remember watching this movie as a kid, and I'm like, I know that's Pee Wee Herman, but I'm looking for his name in the credits, and it's Paul Wall. Uh, they thought that having Paul Rubin's name associated would detract from the movie. Also, this is some of the earliest use of CGI ever done in a film. And also, the, the synth-based soundtrack does date it, but it was created by Back to the Future's Alan Silvestri. Okay, number five, The Goonies. There is no kid who grew up in the 80s, if this is you, who was not influenced or loved The Goonies. It's often the very favorite movie of kids from that decade. What makes Goonies so great that at its core, it's just a treasure hunt. It's another Chris Columbus movie, and it's based on a comic called The Goon Children. And it's just that perfect you know, Spielbergian movie of youth-based adventure. came out on June 7th, 1985. It made $124 million worldwide, and it's another one of those movies selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. They put movies in like this that are considered uh, either culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I think that makes The Goonies, like what makes The Goonies so great is you you pick up on the energy of the young actors. It was one of those movies like you wish you were in, you know, like you wished it was real and you wish you could be part of it, and you've sort of fantasized about having that same adventure and having those same friends and everything like that. So some fun facts, the reaction when they finally see one-eyed Willie's pirate ship, that is all genuine responses from the actors because they were actually seeing the construction of the ship and the set for the very first time. So you're seeing their actual joy on film. Uh, Sean Astin improvised that whole story of one-eyed Willie, which is pretty amazing for a kid actor. 
another interesting thing, Sloth wears a Superman shirt. That's an ode to Goonies director Richard Donner, who also directed Superman. Okay, number four, The Empire Strikes Back, the best Star Wars movie ever. You can fight me on that. What makes Empire Strikes Back so great is that it, it took away, um, it, like, no, it took that step away from, you know, when a movie's a big hit, there's that continuation of trying to recreate it again. It didn't attempt to do that at all. It 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 it, it didn't rehash Star Wars. It took the entire trilogy in a whole new, mature, uh, and darker direction. The idea is that with The Empire Strikes Back is like the idea of a play. When you're watching a play, it's usually broken up into three acts. And in the second act, that's usually when everything kind of goes to hell. And that's often regarded as the best act of a play before they can bring it back all together. So, you know, Star Wars is great, but it is kind of, it is kind of corny. Some of the lines are eye-rolling, the dialogue and... The, the performances and whatever, but the empire strikes back with star Wars, like all grown up. It was more intense. And we realize these are just not like one dimensional characters. It fleshes out more of Luke's past and has the greatest reveal in movie history. The technology is also rapidly advanced at this point, And the movie is like a technical masterpiece. So the empire strikes back again, crazy. It came back. Uh, it came out in 1980 on May 17th. The movie rock people to their core and would be a definitive part of 80s movie culture and and movie culture for all of history. It made an astounding $547 million. It's $1.6 billion today, uh, considering it opened on not that many screens compared to the movies that we know now and, again, considered one of the greatest movies ever made. Fun facts, the original script had Vader telling Luke that Obi-Wan Kenobi had killed his father just to not let the cat out of the bag and that they didn't, um, Mark Hamill didn't know the actual real spoiler until they were just about to film it. Also, and this happens all the time, the line is, no, I am your father, not Luke, I am your father. Also, another just fun fact, Jim Henson was originally supposed to play Yoda, but then they went with Frank Oz. Okay, we're into the top three. Thank you for staying with me here. Okay, number three, The Shining. Though it's not number one on my list, it might be my favorite ever. So, you know, the brilliant Stanley Kubrick masterpiece in his version of the classic Stephen King novel, it's the story of Jack Torrance, his son Danny and wife Wendy, and really the main character of the movie, The Overlook Hotel. Again, like Blade Runner, The Shining was not appreciated in its time, mainly because it takes a few viewings to let this movie really sink itself into you. And then again, there's all the interpretations. Like, what is this movie about? Is it about the faking of the moon landing? Is it about the genocide of the Native Americans? Is it, uh, is it something more? Is it deeper? Is it not as deep as we think it is? The true intent of this movie will probably never be understood. But the the one way you can look at it is about the battle between good and evil that happens within the minds of everyone. Um, And then again, with this movie, there's also the stories of the making of the movie, which are as famous as the film itself. Or if you've seen the documentary room two, three, seven. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. And then there's the fact that Stephen King hated this movie uh, for a multiple different reasons. Like I said, there's so much, again, this can be its own podcast just about the shining, but the shining though, it's one of the most memorable, disturbing, culturally significant and iconic movies, not just of the 80s, but of all time. 
Okay, we're in the top two. So I, I don't know if you're thinking ahead of what these might be, but might be able to narrow it down. Okay, number two, E.T. I would have had The Shining at number two, but I think E.T. is more symbolic of a true 80s movie that's accessible to everyone, including kids. It's another one of those films that you immediately think of as representing the decade. One of the most heartwarming movies ever, the story of E.T. is also the story of separation and divorce that affected Steven Spielberg personally. That was what he was trying to reflect in this movie. E.T. represented that things were going to be okay, and this struck a chord with many people. E.T. is like the blockbuster's blockbuster. And when it came out on June 11th, 1982, it took the world by storm. It redefined what a movie could be, made an amazing $800 million on a budget of only $10 million. So that's over $2.1 billion today. This broke the record that Star Wars set, and E.T. would stay as the number one highest-grossing movie for an amazing 11 years until it was surpassed by Jurassic Park. E.T. is such a significant part of movies and popular culture um, it's just, it's definitely one of the greatest films of all time. Okay. So fun facts. Most of the movie is go back and watch this and you, you probably never notice this. Most of it is shot from the eye level of a child and that has helped to uh, better connect the audience with Elliot and ET. ET himself is considered to be over 10 million years old. And again, Oh, I almost forgot this. Harrison Ford was actually in this movie, but his scene got cut out. So he just, again, dominated the movie. Of the 80s. Okay. Number one movie. Again, if you've been on this um, podcast before, you probably know it. It's the Garbage Pail Kids. No, I'm kidding. Back to the Future. Uh, there's no way this isn't going to be number one on my list of the best 80s movies. Um, again, I probably shouldn't need to go over the plot because if you don't know it, then this isn't the podcast for you. But Back to the Future is the perfect movie. It's time travel, it's science fiction, it's action, it's comedy. It's adventure, and it's just as fun as a movie can get. It made use of one of the most popular young actors at the time in Michael J. Fox. Uh, it was such a unique and original idea, and it's just it's one of those movies that if I'm thinking of something I just want to watch, it's the movie that always comes to mind. And I've seen it, I don't know, how many times have I seen this? I, I don't know, 50 times I've seen this thing. It also perfectly captures the 80s. It's absolutely timeless. It gave us you know, the coolest car ever put on the screen. It's got an iconic soundtrack, an amazing musical score. The movie goes really deep, too. Every time you watch it, you can notice new things. And I think this is a hallmark of any classic movie. Uh, and I guarantee there's stuff you have not caught in this thing, even if you've seen it 20, 30 times. So it came out on July 3rd, 1985. It made nearly $400 million, and it was the number one movie of 1985. Again, to me, it's one of the best movies of all time. The pinnacle of the 80s and number one of my top 21 movies of the decade. So thanks for listening. I hope you like this. Uh, again, if you haven't already subscribed or if you get your podcast, I should be there. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. 88 miles per hour!